Well, good morning. It's been a while since I've heard Jamie Grace. Nice to hear that song from her. Well, if you've been attending Grace for any period of time, you know that over the last year to year and a half, we've begun to close our services by inviting people to come forward to receive prayer from the prayer team. Doug will often share the impressions that different individuals had at the end of the pre-service prayer of some indications of maybe circumstances or maybe an area of healing or something as an invitation to come forward. I've attended many of those pre-service prayer times and I'm always very kind of intrigued and amazed to hear the way that people articulate these impressions. Sometimes people will say, well, I see the word and they'll give the word or I hear this word or I see a picture of this. Oftentimes, I don't get those kinds of impressions, and sometimes I kind of wonder, hey, God, what about me? But I have to remind myself that we all don't have the same gifts, do we? My hope is that maybe some of you will experience something like that before you leave today, a sense of God tugging at you to come forward. I remember a few years ago when our friend Heath Flock came to spend the afternoon with my business partner, Tony, and myself. Before we were to go out and have a little ministry time, we sat down and he gave us a sheet of paper and said, we're gonna invite the Holy Spirit to give us impressions or pictures of who he wants us to interact with. As we sat there, we kind of were done after a minute or two. His sheet had 12 or 14 items on it. Mine was blank. But I was amazed that over the next 40 minutes or so, as we were out at Eastland Mall, every single one of the descriptors that he had, we ran into somebody. And it was, it was really amazing to be a part of that. Now, the way that I tend to receive promptings from God is not that way, but often it comes alongside some of the um, the times I'm invited to give a talk or to speak. Last uh, November, Doug invited me to close out the Colossians series. And at the end of that kind of passage, there's just a lot of, you know, this person did this and I encourage you with this and whatnot. And as I, as I was reading through it, I just kind of saw that Paul said, I sent this person to you just to encourage your hearts. And these people have been such a comfort to me. And this one guy, Epaphras, he's constantly struggling in prayer for you that you would stand firm. And I felt the sense that God was reminding me of a passage from 1 Corinthians 14 where Paul says, eagerly desire the spiritual giftings, especially prophecy, because the one that prophecies speaks to others for their encouragement, for their comfort, and for their strength. The challenge was clear. We're to be as a church asking God to give us these kinds of impressions that we might speak life and encouragement and comfort to other people. That's when we rolled out the D groups, the discipleship groups, where we've been seeking to really help people learn to engage with other believers in a way that's connected to God's Spirit's promptings. Now, when Doug asked me to speak this weekend, he said it was gonna be the tail end of the Unsung Heroes uh, series. He suggested that I interview the person that I'll be bringing up at the end of the talk here today. And he said, just pray about what God might have you to share. So after, I don't know, a week or 10 days, I interacted back with Doug and said, here's the passage that's been swirling around, and I got the thumbs up for him to proceed. Now, for those of you who know me, you probably are not going to be too surprised that we're going to be looking at some obscure passage in the Old Testament. You know, I have a lot of people I know who say things like this to me. I just don't get the Old Testament. It puts me to sleep at night. It's just, I don't, I don't, it just seems like just a lot of random names and stories. For some reason, this passage in particular, as I've been meditating, it's almost like I'm watching a movie. I can sense the, the, the interactions in Dolby surround sound in vivid colors, and I sure hope I can do justice in what I articulate for what's going on, at least in my mind. 
Now, Martin Sanders, when he was here a few weeks ago, he spoke to us from 1 Kings 11. It was the end of Solomon's life, and he was sharing how God was very displeased with how he ended up his life, and some discipline ensued. We're going to pick up somewhat after that story was there. Now, today's going to be a little bit of a shotgun approach. As some of you may know, Doug's been on his annual hunting expedition. It's, i got to be honest, it's a sport I don't quite understand. You know, why anybody would want to go out in the freezing cold, drizzling rain or snow, sit on some some stool all day long, can't talk to anybody, in the hopes that Bambi will just come waltzing by. And if you're lucky enough for that to happen, then you start praying that there's no one on the other side of the field shooting back at you, right? So be that as it may, my, my understanding of, of hunting is about as complicated as this. I know that there's a rifle and there's a shotgun. With a rifle, as I understand it, a laser shot goes out. You need to have perfect aim, especially if you're aiming at a larger beast, because if you don't hit the vitals, it just is a minor flesh wound and they walk on or run away. A shotgun, I think, would be much more my style. You know, the thought of having some dogs rouse up a flock of ducks to fly overhead and to shoot a thousand BBs out of your little cannon in the hopes that you might hit three or four and have them fall down, that's kind of my way hunting, if I were to be a hunter. I share all that today because my hope is that at least one BB hits each of you that's here today. So let's pray, and then we'll jump into our passage. Lord, I ask that you would help me to really bring alive this narrative that's embedded in the scriptures we're looking at today. Thank you for being a God who relentlessly and recklessly loves us, as we just sang about. Thank you that you're a God who intervenes in history, and you offer us undeserved opportunities to be on mission with you, that you desire us to experience a dynamic, somewhat risky at times, but a relationship that's full of life. And I ask that you would give us the courage, as Flett was sharing with us last week, to be available to say, speak, Lord, your servant is listening. Here I am. Send me. Would your Holy Spirit come speak and convict where necessary and bring life change? For Jesus' sake we pray. Amen. Well, you can turn in your Bibles if you want to page 292. We're picking up in 1 Kings chapter 11. Now, what happened was Solomon got kind of spanked and disciplined, and God, in essence, said, because you've not been faithful to me, you've had all these women, you've created all these other false religious opportunities for people, and you're compromised, I'm going to take away the kingdom from you. At the time, there were the 12 tribes of Israel. He says, I'm going to leave you a remnant, but I'm going to give another, the top 10 away to somebody else, but for the sake of your father who was a good guy, I'm gonna let you live out the rest of your life. Now, God also, it says, began to orchestrate many friends who became enemies to just be kind of a nagging pain in the neck to Solomon for much of the latter days of his life. And then we read about this guy, Jeroboam. Now, just to give you an overview, today we're gonna hear about a business guy, we're gonna hear about a couple kings, we're gonna have some priests thrown in there, some common folk, and then we're gonna have a chance to hear about three different prophets. Our unsung hero today is actually gonna be somewhat of what I call the unnamed tragic unsung hero, but that's not until a little bit later. Let's jump into the text. We read this, Jeroboam, a servant of Solomon, also lifted up his hand against the king. Jeroboam was very able, and when Solomon saw that the young man was industrious, he gave him charge over all the forced labor of the house of Joseph. Pretty good promotion for this young, aspiring yuppie. At that time, when Jeroboam went out of Jerusalem, the prophet Ahijah 
found him on the road. Now, Ahijah had dressed himself in a new garment, and the two of them were alone in the open country. Then Ahijah laid hold of the new garment that was on him. He tore it into 12 pieces, and he said to Jeroboam, take for yourself 10 pieces, for thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, behold, I'm about to tear the kingdom from the hand of Solomon and will give you 10 tribes because they have forsaken me. And they have not walked in my ways, doing what is right in my sight, and keeping my statutes and my rules as David, his father, did. You shall reign over all that your soul desires, and you shall be king over Israel. And if you will listen to all that I command you, and will walk in my ways and do what is right in my eyes by keeping my statutes and my commandments as David my servant did. I will be with you and I will build you a sure house as I built for David and I will give Israel to you. Solomon sought therefore to kill Jeroboam but Jeroboam arose and fled to Egypt to the king of Egypt and was there until the death of Solomon. So, Let's just focus in on Jeroboam for a minute. Pretty stinking good day for Jeroboam, wouldn't you say? You get the promotion, you're in charge, you're down at the headquarters in Jerusalem, you're out for some reason out in the country, and God sends the prophet to say, it's the lucky day, it's the lotto jackpot. I'm gonna give you 10 of the tribes, and if you just follow my rules, I'm gonna put a covering over you, and my blessing will be with you. Unbelievable opportunity. Now, as we saw, Solomon somehow finds out, and he has to flee for his life, and he's in exile till Solomon dies. Now, I'm skipping a lot of the kind of passage because I'm trying to get this out of here before noon, um, but I'm going to try to just give you some of the key points. So, Solomon dies, and his son Rehoboam becomes king over all of Israel at that point. Now, Jeroboam gets brought back, and he's part of a delegation coming down to meet with the new king. I like to think of him in this role as kind of union negotiator. And in essence, this is kind of what they say to the new king. Hey, Solomon, hey, we're rich, and we love all the wealth that he's created, but he's working us like dogs. Got an idea for you. Would you be willing to move us from the 12-hour, six-days-a-week regime to the 50-hour? We just want to work 10 hours a day, five hours a day, maybe throw in a little holidays now and again and pay for overtime. The new king says, come back in three days and I'll give you my answer. So he first calls in some of his father's advisors and the conversation goes something like this. Well, you know, Solomon was a hard taskmaster. If you throw these guys a little bit of a bone and relax some of the intensity, they're going to be like faithful dogs the rest of your life. They'll, they'll be your best friend. Then he goes to his young peers, and they say to him, are you kidding me? You've got to earn their respect day one. Put the hammer down. So they come back three days later, and we're going to pick up in 1 Kings chapter 12. So Jeroboam and all the people came to Rehoboam the third day, and the king answered the people harshly, saying, my father made your yoke heavy, but I will add to your yoke. My father disciplined you with whips. I'm going to discipline you with scorpions. So the king didn't listen to the people. For it was a turn of affairs brought about by the Lord that he might fulfill his word, which the Lord spoke by Abijah to Jeroboam. Needless to say, the delegation went away a little bit upset, and they rebelled. Now, then it says, When all Israel heard that Jeroboam had returned, they sent and called him to the assembly and made him king over all Israel. There was none that followed the house of David, but the tribe of Judah only. 
So the brass young king kind of messes it up. Now, as you might imagine, he wasn't too happy to see everybody walk away. I mean, what's going to happen with his taxes and all of his income that's flowing in from all over the country? So he goes back and he musters up his whole army. He's ready to go out and kind of take them down. And God sends a prophet. And the prophet says, hey, hold on. You can't kill your relatives and your, and your brothers. This is my doing. I disciplined your father. And for some reason, he listens. And so we now have this kind of duality that's going to go on for the next little while. We've got this southern kingdom with Rehoboam in Judah, and we've got the northern rebels up north. Now, imagine that you're Jeroboam. You had this prophecy made over you maybe a long time ago. He's in exile for some period of time. I'm sure he started daydreaming, once I'm in charge, what will I do? But think of all the decisions he needed to make. I recently was a part of a a three-day integration Um, process where a company had acquired a division and they were having to answer a gazillion questions that I know that the owners had never thought about when they first decided to make this acquisition. I mean, where's the headquarters going to be? How are we going to work taxes under this new regime? And not not too unimportant for him, what am I going to do about religion? You see, God had established some pretty clear rules. In fact, the rule was that three times a year, people need to make pilgrimage down to Jerusalem, which is down in Judah. And that gets Jeroboam thinking, you know, that's a little risky if I let everybody keep going down there. Let's see what he does in one of his early decisions in this integration. This is in chapter 12, verse 25. And we read this, and Jeroboam said in his heart, If this people go to offer sacrifices in the temple of the Lord at Jerusalem, the heart of the people are going to turn again to Rehoboam, and they're going to kill me, and it's going to all go to Rehoboam. Now, this is where it's going to start to get a little bit intense for some of us. You see, I think oftentimes if we were honest, the things that we conclude in our heart are pretty dangerous, aren't they? I mean, think about it. Out of nowhere, he gets the lotto jackpot ticket. Take 10 pieces. I'm going to give you the northern tribes. There's just one little caveat. Follow my rules. I mean, why couldn't he have said this to himself? If God put me here and God said, go to Jerusalem, he must put a force field over people's hearts and they'll stay true to me. Because if I honor God, I trust that his umbrella of protection will be the answer. He didn't think that way. And it's tragic to see what happens. In verse 26, we read this. So the king took counsel. You're not even going to believe what you're going to read. He made two calves of gold and he said, you've gone down to Jerusalem long enough. Here are your gods, Israel. These are the ones that took you out of Egypt. And then he set one in Bethel and the other one he set in Dan. And then this thing became a sin for them. For the people went as far as Dan to stand before one of them. Anybody remember what happened when Moses was getting the Ten Commandments up on the mountain for 40 days? Aaron builds a golden calf. I mean, that's why they all got smashed on the ground you know, when he came down with the Ten Commandments. It's almost mind-boggling that someone could be that stupid until you start to think about the ways that in your own heart God, are you there really? You know, if I honor what you're saying, no one's going to ever want to marry me. I'm going to be single my whole life. How am I ever going to have any profit if I honestly seek to do business fairly? 
Let me just give you a little bit of a description of what's going on. This pink area is Judah. It's not just one little dinky tribe. It's a huge area. That's kind of the famous one that, you know, the line of the tribe of Judah we were singing about. This yellow area here is, is the northern ten tribes of Israel that he gets. A couple on the other side of the, of the Dead Sea and all around in there. Now, Jerusalem is here, the star. Bethel is about 10 miles north. Dan is at the very top. So what does he do? He puts a golden idol in Bethel and in Dan, and he says, this is what you need to do from now on. Now, imagine what that turn of events might have done for the priests that were living up in the northern tribes. We're going to turn to 2 Chronicles for this. And, you know, I know that for a lot of people, you're not really that into the Old Testament stories. If, you're, if you've ever gotten stuck trying to read through, go on a Bible app and get a chronological Bible. It's fascinating to read the snippets and then get the prophets thrown in. Well, First and Second Kings covers a period since Solomon till the end when they get taken out by Babylonia. That's about 450 years. It gives a kind of duality of the southern kings as, as well as the northern ones. There wasn't one godly northern king, and there were only a handful of godly ones on the south. Chronicles only talks about the kings of Judah. And so you kind of get a little bit of a different spin sometimes when you're looking at the concurrent passage in Chronicles. That's what we're going to do right now. Verse 13 of chapter 11. The priests and the Levites who were in all Israel presented themselves to Rehoboam from all the places where they lived. For the Levites left their lands and holdings and came to Judah and Jerusalem because Jeroboam and his sons cast them out from serving as priests. He appointed his own priests for the high places and for his idols that he had made. And those who had set their hearts to seek the Lord of God of Israel came after them from all the tribes of Israel to Jerusalem to sacrifice to the Lord, the God of their fathers. They strengthened the kingdom of Judah, and for three years they made Rehoboam, son of Solomon, secure. For they walked three years in the way of David and Solomon. This raises a fairly interesting dilemma sometimes for us, doesn't it? What do you do when you're living in the midst of a pagan system? I mean, there may be some people even in this church that migrated because you felt at some point the church you were going to no longer really even seemed to believe what the Bible taught, right? How do you know when it's so corrupt that you leave your lands and you migrate down into Jerusalem? Now, think about Rehoboam, okay? He kind of gets a windfall out of this. I mean, imagine this. Imagine if all the Christians that fully loved Jesus in the Detroit area all decided to come to our church, Talk about a bonanza, all the faith, the people that pray for miracles, people that are great at, you know, discipling and teaching. We would just be rock stars here, right? So he gets the windfall of all the godly people coming down. And it says for the first three years, it really helped him stay focused and stay secure. Now, speaking of Rehoboam, this is part of my gunshot approach. You're going to get a freebie here, okay? Chapter 12 of Second Chronicles. When the rule of Rehoboam was established and he was strong, he abandoned the law of the Lord and all Israel with him. He gets the windfall of the godly people for three years, and then we read that in the fifth year, because they had been unfaithful, God sends the king of Egypt up to Jerusalem. God sends a prophet to Rehoboam and says, here's the story. You abandon me, I'm abandoning you. Now, I'm skipping another kind of fun part, but amazingly, 
they go, oh no, we're sorry, we, get, we repent, give us another chance. And God says, I noticed your humble response. For that, I'm not gonna toast you, but you're gonna become indentured servants. <laughs> not sure why that was funny. Kill you is what I meant to say. Listen to this, verse nine. So the king of Egypt comes up against Jerusalem. He takes away the treasures of the house of the Lord and the treasures of the king's house. He took away everything, also the gold shields that Solomon had made. Think about this. Solomon was the richest guy in history. He was so wealthy, it says, that gold and silver was so commonplace, they treated it like Dixie cups. Two years after Rehoboam starts to go sideways in his relationship with God. It's all gone. So here's a freebie for you. What do you think is more important, parents? That we give a nice nest egg to our kids, some money, that we use our connections to try to get them that job, to get them launched, or that we transfer a faith that living under the umbrella is the key You know, I often have people that say things like this to me. You know, I don't, I, don't, I don't really get the Old Testament God. It's just fire and brimstone, and he's just, he just seems really angry all the time. And then we get the love of Jesus in the New Testament. They seem like different gods. And I sometimes want to say, do you ever read it, really? First of all, you ever read Revelation? It's going to get ugly, right? But here's what I read when I read this story. How sad to be God. He just can't, fi- he can't find a winner. He gives a guy a lotto ticket. And the first thing he does is, you can't be trusted. Let's get rid of all the priests and let's forget about the blessing of God and following his rules. We got to do it my way. Then he's got this one little grandson of David that because of David, he's still giving him a chance. And after he gets secure and he's not worried about money and rebellion, he goes away and he abandons and 80 years of family wealth accumulation between David and Solomon are completely eviscerated after two years of sin. Let's just recap where we've been so far. Solomon's sin leads to huge downstream problems. Jeroboam squanders the lotto ticket opportunity. Two years he races 80, and the core we saw was that Jeroboam said in his heart, I don't think trusting God is the right way to go. Now, last week, Flett talked to us about Ananias. It was awesome for those of you who were not here. I encourage you to, to listen to it. He said, you know, he, he was a disciple of Jesus, and Saul the persecutor came to his town. You know, he knew that Saul had been approving of one of the martyrs, Stephen, that had been killed, and he had papers to arrest, bring back to prison for trial, maybe for, for beatings and maybe even for death. And he's having his quiet time one morning, and he distinctly hears God say, I want you to go to his hotel and knock on his door, and I want you to lay hands on him, and I want you to pray that he receives his sight. At which point he goes, wait a second, God, this is the guy that wants to ruin my life. Are you sure that this is going to work? And what did Flett tell us about the importance of how we do this acts, right? We have to be available. We've got to say, God, I'm listening to what your promptings are. Or as in Isaiah, here I am, send me. But he said it takes courage to follow God. It's not often an easy thing he's asking us to do. We have to have a teachable spirit, and we need to learn to be led, to be influenced by the spirit. Now, imagine that you're alive in Judah, you know, that southern part. 
and you're kind of just chilling out as a good Hebrew would do, you know, meditating on a psalm, maybe whatever, and you sense God say this, I want you to road trip up to Bethel. It's only a 10-mile journey. It's not going to kill you. Um, and I want you to go right while Jeroboam the king is having his sacrifices, and you're basically going to say, I'm going to sacrifice your priests on this altar. I'm going to give you a Shazam miracle. It's going to blow up, uh, and then you're going to go on home. At which point he might go, why do you want to kill me, God? I'm never going to get home from that experience if I tell the king this message. God says, don't sweat it. Here are the rules. You're going to give your message. No food, no drink. In other words, no McDonald's stop until you're back into your Judah territory, and you can't take the same route back that you went. This is where we pick up in 1 Kings chapter 13. By the way, we finally made it to the unsung hero. Okay, here we go. And behold, a man of God came out of Judah by the word of the Lord to Bethel. Jeroboam was standing by the altar to make offerings. And the man cried against the altar by the word of the Lord and said, O altar, altar, thus says the Lord. Behold, a son shall be born to the house of David, Josiah by name. And he shall sacrifice on you the priests of the high places who make offerings on you. And human bones shall be burned on you. And he gave a sign the same day, saying, This is the sign that the Lord has spoken. Behold, the altar shall be torn down and the ashes that are on it shall be poured out. And when the king heard the saying of the man of God, which he cried against the altar at Bethel, Jeroboam stretched out his hand from the altar saying, seize him. And his hand, when he stretched out it out against him, dried up and he couldn't draw it back. The altar was torn down. The ashes poured out from the altar according to the sign that the man of God had given by the word of the Lord. And the king said, please pray for me. Ask God to heal my hand. And the man of God prays to the Lord, and the king's hand is restored, and it became as it was before. All right, scene one with the unsung hero. He gets his first at-bat, and what's he do? He rips a double down the left field line, right? He just crushes it. He gives the message, and what would we want to have happen if we were in his shoes, right? The force field of God protects him from the king. He gets all seized up, and then he kind of says, this is the miracle that's going to happen, and the explosion goes off. It would have been awesome to be him at that point, don't you think? Now the king has a change of heart. And in verse 7, we read this. And the king said to the man of God, hey, come home with me and refresh yourself, and I'll give you a reward. And the man of God said to the king, if you gave me half of your house, I will not go in with you. I will not eat bread or drink water in this place, for so it was commanded me by the word of the Lord, saying, you shall neither eat bread nor drink water nor return by the way that you came. So he went another way and did not return by the way that he came to Bethel. The prophet says, no way, I don't care about your money. I'm going to obey God. Maybe he was a little scared and said, let's get out of Dodge before something else happens. I don't know. But what I do know is that he's now two for two, right? He gives the word. He gets the first temptation to, hey, let's enjoy. Let's kind of become friends. Let's kind of, kind of figure out how to work this out a little bit. He says, no, God spoke, and I'm going to obey what he said. Unfortunately, there are some boys there that overhear this whose father happens to be an old prophet from Bethel. Now, what, do we, what can we surmise is true about this prophet from Bethel? Is he one of the wholehearted followers of Jesus? I think not. I mean, I would hope if I lived back then and I had a bunch of kids, I would want to migrate down to where the blessing of God was and not have them be watching someone worshiping a golden calf, right? That's not exactly great parenting from my perspective. But they go and they tell their dad what happened. 
And now we pick this up in chapter 13, verse 11. Now an old prophet lived in Bethel, and his sons came and told him all that the man of God had done that day in Bethel. They also told their father the words he had spoken to the king. And he went after the man of God and found him sitting under an oak, and he said to him, are you the man of God who came from Judah? And he said, I am. Then he said to him, come home with me and eat bread. And he said, I may not return with you or go in with you. Neither will I eat bread nor drink water with you in this place. For it was said to me by the word of the Lord, you shall neither eat bread nor drink water there nor return by the way that you came. So far, so good. Three for three, right? The prophet comes and says, hey, I really want to spend some time with you. You must be tired. You're sitting down. Come, let me refresh you. And he says, I'm not going to disobey God's word. And this is where the story has a little curveball. And the man says to him in verse 18, hey, I'm a prophet too. An angel spoke to me and said, bring him back into your house so that he can have some food and water. But he lied. So the prophet says, well, I guess God could speak to someone else too. And he goes back and he eats bread and he drinks water. And as they're at the table, suddenly a real word from God comes to the old prophet and he cries out against this unsung hero, the tragic one, and he says this, verse 21. Thus says the Lord, because you have disobeyed the word of the Lord and have not kept the command that the Lord your God commanded you, but have come back and have eaten bread and drunk water in the place of which he said to you, eat no bread and drink no water, your body shall not come to the tomb of your fathers. And after he had eaten bread and drunk, he saddled the donkey for the prophet whom he had brought back. And as he went away, a lion met him on the road and killed him. And his body was thrown in the road and the donkey stood beside it. The lion also stood beside the body. Well, that's all of our uh, scripture for today. Now we gotta figure out how to apply it. Why is this in the Bible? How are we meant to apply this. Well, one thing's for sure. If you ever do hear God speak to you, he has the ability to speak the opposite to you if he's gonna change his mind, right? Many times we've, we see this phrase in the New Testament, let the one who has ears to hear, hear what the Spirit is saying. In a few minutes, I'm gonna ask us to quietly sit and say, Holy Spirit, God, do you have a message for me? I think some takeaways are pretty easy, right? The first one is just that bad choices ruin lives. It ruins our life, and often it negatively influences the lives of the people who depend on us the most. I think the second takeaway is that it's, it's not safe to be a Christian. It takes guts to follow Christ. The core question I think we need to answer for ourselves today is this. Do I believe that living under the umbrella of God's protection is the best way to live? Or do I really think God's a little out of date? I need to help him. It wouldn't surprise me if some of you here have had something stirring in you for some time. And maybe you've just been fumbling it. If that's you, I just would encourage you to, to own it, to repent. Look, when God sends the prophet, the hope that God has is that there's a change of heart. We sometimes still suffer the consequences of our bad choices, but as I've always kind of thought was an interesting phenomenon in Scripture, it's always better 
to repent when you're confronted than to wait for the discipline to hit. It also wouldn't surprise me if some of us have had something stirring in us, maybe even as I've been talking, your heart's just, you've had this reminder of something he's called you to do, something that, that you sense is from him and you've just been afraid. You've been afraid to jump out. Maybe some of us are here and we're actually in outright rebellion in some area of our life. We're risking a ton of headache when we give God the Heisman, when we sense he's prompting us with something. And some of us are just too stinking busy following our own dreams and agendas to even hear God's voice when he speaks. As Flett said last week, it's really not that complicated, is it? We hear from God and then we adjust our lives and we obey. It's all good and fine when it's kind of like out there, you know, abstract, isn't it? But what if the thing that the Spirit's been prompting you is this. You need to confess some dark secrets to your spouse or maybe to others. Or what if you sense him prompting you, you need to give X thousand dollars to this person or this ministry, or you need to, to do something for somebody that's gonna be inconvenient. Or what if it's something like this? There's an area of relationship that you've been pushing things under the carpet for months and you need to have a tough conversation and you're just, you're just afraid to honor God in it. See, that's where the rubber meets the road. Now, before we close, I want to invite my wife, Melissa, to come up. Um, she has had a very interesting um, experience over the last year or so. She wrote a book. Uh, it's called Balance in Action, and the, you can have a seat if you want. Sorry, let me give you a hug. Sorry about that. Welcome. <laughs> Oops. Uh, she wrote a book called Balance in Action, and, you know, as you, as you might assume, you know, she's a singer and she's up front a lot, but I've never really known her to be much of an author or to have much of a bug uh, to be a writer. The, the key principles of the book, the chapters are up there on the slide, and um, each of the chapters, she has had a similar kind of um, model, mind, body, and spirit. So, Melissa, welcome to the stage. Okay. So let me ask you this question. A person who leads worship, you do lots of prayer appointments with people, you write songs. How does a person like that sense God telling you you should write a book? How did that come about? Honestly, it was really strange because <laughs> it is so not me. Um, so I think what started to happen was, um, if I guess, first of all, if you're a parent, you know that you want your kids to love the Lord and you want the best for your kids. I mean, if anything happens to your children, it just rocks your world, you know, that kind of thing. So um, our six children, they started to grow up and get married and I have my first, we have our first grandchild. And so I started thinking, what would I want my children to know? And um, at first, I just thought, you know, I would sit them down and, and tell them. But then this book idea started coming to my mind. And I actually wanted to hand them something to live by. And then it became, I think, this transferable concept to the people I was doing prayer appointments with. And then this passion started developing in me for um, all of us here uh, all Christians in the world, I mean, to be free and balanced and, and walk with the Lord in freedom. 
Um, so I, that's that's what happened. It was it was pretty strange, actually. Okay. Now, in your introduction, you talk about how you've you know over the decades you've met with lots of different people. You've seen people get unblocked. How did this concept of having it be mind, body, and soul come together? Why why do you think that's so important to have kind of the three legs of the stool, if you will? Um, so I've always been pretty passionate um, about healing the whole person, and I think. Um, that's kind of how it, it came about. I just thought, you know, if, you know, we can be the most spiritual people in the world, we can not believe lies, we can be healed in our soul, but if our body is not balanced and we're addicted to sugar and we're exhausted all the time, you know, that, that's not going to help us at all. So that was kind of the concept of the three-legged stool there. Okay, and then everyone can see the different chapter titles. How did you get a sense of what you wanted to have each chapter be, and how did the progression in the order that you do them end up working out? Well, that first chapter, paying attention, um, just, I think sometimes we're so numbed in our culture by our cell phones and by our computers and, you know, by all the things that we're doing, we just don't pay attention to what's going on in here. And have you all heard the statistic that um, most people, 70% of their self-talk is negative? Have you guys heard that? That's crazy, isn't it? 70% of what is going on in here, unless we're aware of it, is negative. And so just beginning to pay attention, and then the book kind of develops along, how do we take that negative self-talk, even be aware of it, and bring it to the Lord and get healing and deliverance and freedom and you know, actually be happy, joyful people. So, okay. yeah. Could you maybe just quickly give an anecdote of, you know, an example of how a mind, something gets unblocked, body and soul, obviously don't use any names, but just kind of give a little feel for what, what that's looked like for you. Yeah, um, one of my good friends told me I could share this story. So um, like many of us raised um, in, with the baby boomers, you know, we had really busy parents. My mom and dad both worked. So I was raised on hot dogs and beans and hamburger helper. I don't know about you, but that was not very healthy, right? So, um, so my friend was as well, and um, we started on this journey together of just, you know, learning about whole food and how to clean out our pantries and stuff like that, and she, her whole life changed. It was really, really incredible. She used to kind of walk around with no energy and brain fog, and we prayed through some of this stuff too, and, and the transformation was remarkable. So that's a body example. Um, a mind example, one young man um, I got to pray for a while ago just was believing the lie that he was unlovable and didn't even know he was believing that lie. And God showed him, you know, in a Shazam moment that that was very untrue. And all of a sudden he was free from that lie. And um, the soul, I think our soul sometimes carries around a lot of shame from our past. And we don't really believe the cross, that when Jesus looks at us, he does not see a sinner. Isn't that incredible? That blows my world. Anyways, so um, that, that concept for this one young lady really rocked her world, that Jesus did not see her past, he did not see her mistakes, and that shame in her soul lifted, and she became free. So... That's great. Who would have thought my wife is an author? That's awesome. <laughs>
Well, Melissa's uh, brought a couple boxes of her books, and if any of you are here and you don't already have a copy of her book and you like one, you can grab a free one for yourself until they run out um, after we're done. Why don't we all just stand up? We're going to close in just a minute. I want to invite us to ask God to, um, to speak to us. If anyone is here and you would like to come forward for prayer and really have somebody maybe help seal something that's stirring in you, please feel free to do so. Some of the words that were received in pre-service prayer today, um, someone said, I just sense people need to realize that when you serve, you will experience more joy. So if you're here and somewhat isolated and that would relate to you, maybe you come forward and we try to see if we can get you connected somewhere. Um, There's a sense that some people are here with some great financial need and just need an encouragement, need God to speak. Someone actually had a word that tied into our song, you know, that, that God says he leaves the 99 to search for the one. Maybe you're the one and you need to come and just receive that God is JSU. And maybe the word was more that we are ourselves to be out investing some time this week in chasing after or in searching for someone who is lost. Um, someone had a sense that there are just some people that just need balance in terms of health and wellness and exercise. Another one had the word yielding, and another one that there would be a sense of us being melted, that our hearts would be ready to respond to what has been shared today. So, um, Lord, we thank you that you are a God who loves us. What a great truth we sing. Thank you that you light up the darkness, that you, you climb over mountains, kick through the walls we put up, and you help us tear down lies. Lord, we, we just be a people that believe in our core, that trusting your ways is the key to blessing. Forgive us for how quickly we, we run back to our comforts and to our, our own ideas. Lord, would you just stir something? Would you have each of us this week have a sense of what what you want us to do and give us the courage to take baby steps and to begin to experience a more dynamic, exciting adventure with you? So Lord, I just pray your blessing on each one that's here. We're so thankful for Thanksgiving. May we all spend time uh, this week really thanking you and being, being grateful for the things we do have, not focus on what we don't. In Jesus' name. Amen.